Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Our coverage continues now with Laura Coates, who is like the, the Reese Hoskins of CNN, and Allison Camerata, who's like the Bryce Harper of CNN. Not that I'm thinking about the Phillies right now. But hi, Laura. Hi, Allison. How are you doing? Oh, take hi, me Jake. out to the ball game. There yes. you go. Phillies I'm... up 7 nothing. top of the six, looking good. Don't jinx, no jinxies, no jinxies. But I mean, who's, who's watching, right? Yesterday, it was, we were out trick-or-treating, and it was rained out practically. So, I mean, good that it happened tonight. Yeah. I, I'm just astonished. I've never been compared to a sports figure, ever. That's wow. I gave you really Bryce impressed. Harper also. I mean, yeah. that's, that's good. That's big. That's oh, yeah. big. It's that's big. Pretty that's pretty big. Good. Okay, <laughs> great. It's pretty cool. Fantastic. Okay, awesome. Stick great. with the Cracker Jacks and a pretzel. Okay, yeah. Allison, there that's you go. Why that's why I go do. to the game. We're going to do it with that. That's, that's wonderful. That's right. Thanks, guys. Right. Have a good show. Thanks, Jake. Thank you, and good, every, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates in Washington. And I'm Allison Camerata in New York. This is CNN Tonight. One week from tonight, they'll be counting ballots in states across the country, which is why the heavyweights from President Biden and Vice President Harris to former Presidents Obama and Trump and Vice President Mike Pence will all be out on the campaign trail this week. So who will make the biggest difference? Plus, there are new shocking details tonight about just what happened. We alleged attacker broke into Nancy Pelosi's home in the middle of the night and attacked her husband. And what else he said that he was planning? A newly released court document quotes the defendant telling officers and medics at the scene, quote, I didn't really want to hurt him, but you know, this was a suicide mission, unquote. And going on to name others that he planned to target Allison, including several prominent state and federal politicians and their relatives. We're all starting tonight at this late hour at the Capitol Police, apparently first learned of the attack via a live camera feed from the home. More on that coming up. We've got a lot to talk about tonight, Allison. So here with me in Washington, D.C., before we turn it over to New York, is CNN political analyst Margaret Tollev, also Democratic strategist Paul Begala, and (laughs) Kevin Madden, who was a top aide to Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. Glad to have you all here. I want to take a step back for a second, if we can, because, you know, when the heavy hitters come out, it's normally an issue of this is the consequential time. I don't even remember at this point in time of even the presidential elections to have so many of the heavyweights coming out across the country in this way. What does this tell you about maybe concerns that Democrats might be having about being able to hold on to the majority? Well, they ought to be concerned, but so should Republicans. Midterm elections, by the way, are always about churn. Every single midterm in the last 20 years, either the House or the Senate flipped. The Democrats have both the House and the Senate. They don't want to flip either. But the, the odds just historically are really against them. This one even more so because the margins are so thin. So it makes sense to bring out Barack Obama and Joe Biden. It makes sense for the Republicans to bring out Mike Pence. I think Trump almost helps and hurts about equally. Maybe hurts more than he helps, to tell you the truth. I'd be a little more scared, scared of him if I were a Republican. The interesting thing, though, is not the partisans trying to get partisans out. It's Liz Cheney, mm-hmm. the, the former number three Republican <laughs> in the House, 
endorsed today Tim Ryan, yeah. the moderate to conservative Democrat in Ohio. That's a big deal. By the way, J.C. Watts, an old friend of mine, who's a senior Republican congressman, still a Republican, endorsed the Democrat running for governor in his home state of Oklahoma. Those things, usually this is just about getting your partisans out. But when you have someone from the other side and heavy hitters from the other side, like Liz Cheney and J.C. Watts, that's that's kind of really interesting to me for the for yeah. the Democrats. I wonder what it tells us about the ability, you know, in the event that the parties, God forbid, have to work together <laughs> and on Capitol Hill and get things done and be bipartisan, as you're explaining. You know, I had a conversation with Congressman Jim Jordan yesterday mm-hmm. on my radio show on Sirius XM, and he actually had something to say that I, I want you to hear about what he thought would be the inability to have bipartisanship. Listen to this. You know, I'm happy to work with Democrats if, 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 if they're really if it's something I truly believe would benefit the country. And I, and I, and I say this, and I don't mean this in a, in a I, I'm one of my best friends. I use this example all the time. One of my a good friends is Dennis Kucinich, and he's crazy left and he thinks I'm one of those no good conservatives. But we're friends and you could have a real debate. Dennis was an old school liberal who believes in the First Amendment. Today's left. I don't know how you work with them. When today's left says, if you don't agree with me, we're going to call you racist and we're going to try to cancel you. So how do you work with people like that? Now, Margaret couldn't help but think you chuckled a little bit. The idea of the bipartisanship comment from Jim Jordan and the congressman. What do you make of that sentiment, though? Because there is a chance, of course, in Congress that people have to work together. But the plan is that it might be impossible. Well, the two cases we were just talking about of uh, people being will Republicans being willing to cross party lines are a Republican who... Uh, lost her primary and is um, running on a mission to make sure Trump never gets elected Ooh. again, uh, and a former uh, Republican, uh, you know, leader in Congress. So I think uh, I think Jim Jordan, I was laughing because the idea that Dennis Kucinich is Jim Jordan's best friend is absurd. <laughs> By the way, I don't remember any Dennis Kucinich, Jim Jordan bills being right. introduced it's when absurd. they were in Congress together. So. But I think but they were friends. Yes. There you go. Yeah. I, I really seen two different things. I think on the Democratic side, you're seeing uh, several Democrats who are never going to run for president again coming out to try to boost turnout. And on the Republican side, you're seeing every Republican who wants to be a player in the 2024 primary come out at the last minute so they can have a piece of a victory. Mm. Uh, I mean, th- so it's it's asymmetric. It's both both are about turnout and both are about turning out different parts of the base. You know, Glenn Youngkin has the ability to turn out uh, more center, slightly right Republicans, whereas, you know, Ted Cruz or Mike Pence might have a different audience. Uh, but Barack Obama's not running for president yeah. again, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think there are really kind of two different plays here. The Trump factor is definitely interesting. Donald Trump can obviously turn out components of the base. Right. But you know where Donald Trump is not campaigning in the final days of the campaign, as far as I know? The state of Georgia. Mm. What do you make of that? Well, um, I think that uh, a race down there that uh, previously was all about the getting out the suburbs Donald Trump, I think, has to know, and I think anybody who's trying to win down there knows that Donald Trump is toxic in the suburbs. And so I think that race, you know, the, all those collar counties around Atlanta, that's going to make or break this race. Donald Trump's not helping in that race. Right. The formula is turn out versus turn off. Yeah. Right. Barack Obama and my party, I take him anywhere. Yeah. He turns out the moderates, he turns out the liberals. He's great. Uh, Mr. Trump, I, I'm telling you, he turns off uh, more suburban Republicans yeah. than he turns on. But if you're six days out and you haven't gotten the MAGA lunatics, <laughs> you're not getting them. And but, so but I, I just wouldn't. I, I think wouldn't, that applies to, uh, you know, these last minute campaigning uh, by big names overall. Yeah. Do they really make a big difference? Do they really drive the, the amount of turnout that you need? I think if it, you're at this point in the race and you haven't made the case on your own, there's very little chance that Barack Obama is going to be able to come in in the last week and do it for you. 
Well, I tell you what, um, Congressman Jordan, one of the points he's raising, he really highlights, we're going to talk about Lily in the show as well, just how prominent the idea of wokeism, so to speak, and the idea of trying to use these statements, these lightning rods to try to have a subliminal message being sent plays time and time and time again. You know, Allison, when you think about where we are right now, and we are six days away, and frankly, a week from tomorrow is when we're really going to know a lot more, right? The day after maybe. the election. Maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe Thursday. Maybe it'll be yeah. TGIF. Who knows? All we know is it is a week or so away. Week adjacent. Is that a good way to think about it? Yes. <laughs> yes. But I would say everybody's going to have to settle in and get comfortable yeah. because it's possible that it's going to take a long time for the mm. final results to come in. But, uh, Laura, we were listening with rapt attention to your panel. So let's bring in our folks here. We have CNN political commentator S.E. Cup. L.Z. Granderson, op-ed columnist for the Los Angeles Times, and CNN senior political analyst John Avalon. Great to have you guys here with us tonight. Okay, so let's talk about somebody who's doing something very interesting. Congresswoman Liz Cheney is doing something she says she's never done before, and she is campaigning with a Democrat. So she's with Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan. Um, Here is how Congresswoman Cheney explains what she's doing there. And this is, by the way, the first time I have ever campaigned for a Democrat. And if we want to ensure the survival of our republic, we have to walk away from politics as usual. We have to walk away. We have to stand up, every one of us, and say, we're going to do what's right for this country. We're going to look beyond partisan politics. If the people in our party are not doing the job they need to do, then we're going to vote for the people in the other party, because we are Americans above all else. Interesting, right, Essie? It's remarkable. Listen, you know, I've been covering politics for a long time. I know Liz Cheney. She's one of the most conservative people I've ever met. I mean, she's to the right of me on many um, issues. And here she is endorsing a Democrat for the first time. Now, it should go without saying I know Alyssa as well. She's a Republicans Democrat. I mean, she comes from the Department of Defense. She's very moderate. I was wondering about that because there are a lot of election deniers out there. So obviously she wants to, Liz Cheney wants to campaign against the election deniers, but she's chosen Alyssa Slotkin to funnel her energy into for a reason. And and Tim Ryan, she's given some attention to too. He's also, I, I, I get that as well. Um, so this is actually a fairly natural combination, Liz Cheney and, and Alyssa Slotkin. Um, but the point Liz is making is not that she's embracing probably most of Slotkin's um, principles and policies. She won't. She's saying what matters more is keeping democracy safe. Because you can come together or figure out policy disagreements. You can't unbreak democracy. And so shoring that up first with people like Alyssa Slotkin and Tim Ryan and maybe some other Democrats that she she could um, in, in the last few days, you know, come behind is more important to her. Let's it's play, remarkable. Let's also play what she said about Congressman Tim Ryan today mm. when she was asked if she would, if she lived in Ohio, would she vote for him? He's a Democrat. So who do you prefer in this race? I would not vote for J.D. Vance. So if you were a Buckeye, if Buckeye State voter, you'd be voting for, for Tim Ryan. I would. What I find LZ so interesting is she could have just said, I would sit it out. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'm not going to vote mm-hmm. for the Republicans, so I wouldn't vote. I mean, that's what a lot of, you know, hardline party loyalists mm-hmm. say. But she said she would vote for the Democrat. Yes, because it's very smart if she still is thinking about running for president. Remember, when she was in the January 6th committee, and if you listen to a lot of 
sort of middle of the road Democrats. They were like, oh my God, she sounds amazing. I would vote for her. And then <laughs> it's, it's a legit thing because they, because a lot well, of. They need to be reminded of how conservative they are. They needed to be, they, they they needed to be reminded yeah. and then they got reminded. So yeah. how do you yeah. solve that? You begin by doing things like this. Aligning yourself up with Democrats, because if you are still thinking about it, you're going to need allies on this side of the aisle to say, no, she's not one of the crazies. And this is one of the ways you do it. I don't think she's only uh, doing it for that reason. No. But I'm trust skeptical me, of that. that I'm that skeptical. It's a really smart strategy. Yeah. She's LZ, go ahead, I, listen, I love it. The first time I think I've ever said this about to you. I think you're being too cynical. I think that it's not like you. Look, it, 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 like, you know, I think Liz Cheney is being genuinely motivated by a desire to put you know, country over party and saying that the only issue that ultimately matters is democracy. But as, as he pointed out, in the case of Alyssa Slotkin, here's someone she shares a lot of values with in national security. Yeah. For, for Tim Ryan, who, by the way, is one of the best communicators right now on the Democratic yes. side mm-hmm. and is speaking to a lot of populist issues that can resonate with, with, with voters who might have voted for Donald Trump. I think there, there's a lot of overlap there, too. But she's actually making a principled point about this election. And we need to see more people going across party lines. But does this help right. Slotkin? Oh, I'll let you respond well, quickly. I, and then well, we'll... I, well, my, my only question is, did she or did she not float the idea that she may run for president? Mm-hmm. Does she have a party? Sort of. No, well, does no, she, she, does she have a party? She doesn't right now. So that means no. she's an independent. Yes. How do you become an independent? But I keep By representing to, what? But I keep having to remind Democrats. I keep having to remind Democrats who um, admire Liz Cheney for all the right reasons um, that she is... She abandoned Trump because he wasn't conservative enough. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. that's how to the right she is. And while she's making the right stand now, this would be a, a terrible way, I think, to win back voters that have left her because they thought she was a traitor. Um, she's not getting Tim Ryan voters. I like Tim Ryan a lot. She's not getting his voters in two years, four years, six years. She's not getting Alyssa Slotkin voters. She could only get very far right voters and they have to have amnesia about what she did to Trump and the party. But, 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 but hold on to my question. Does it help the Democrat that she is campaigning? Yes. How? Yeah. Yes. In, yeah. In, in districts like Alyssa Slotkin's district in Ohio, which went for Donald Trump, you know, 53, got 53% of the vote. It helps create, it's a third party validator issue, right? Which is that you're more likely to believe that this person is not, you know, the far left wacko, the Dem- Republicans are trying to paint him as. If it's someone as conservative as Liz Cheney, who's put her career on the line to defend democracy, saying, you know what, I'd vote for this person because we care about the country, we care about democracy, and we agree on a couple issues. And that matters more. I think it gives just Republicans think, permission yes, to does. go ahead and vote for an but Alyssa Slotkin or a Tim Ryan. I'm trying to figure out, though, why the two of you think it has to be either or and not an and. Why can't both things be true? How why, can, why can't she be legitimately defending democracy while also being cognizant of how this would benefit her it, it, if she decided to continue on in politics? can be, but that's so many moves out, right? I mean, first of all, an, as, as an independent, woman. she is a brilliant woman, but getting on the ballot third in 50 states as an independent candidate is incredibly difficult. It's just a lot of moves out. She has burnt her bridges with Republicans right mm-hmm. now, and she is too conservative on policies, to yeah. his point, for a typical Democrat. Now, look, I'm all in favor of third parties and independent candidates running. All day long. But that is so many moves out for this to be mm-hmm. a bank shot that she thinks yeah. it's smart to get elected president by endorsing well, this. Either, right. Well, either she's brilliant yep. or she's not. Hold that thought for a moment. Uh, Laura, this is part of the chess game and we're all analyzing it here. <laughs> we are. I mean, think about it. I mean, the one distinction which can come up, of course, is no matter how much support there might be for, say, a congresswoman Liz Cheney, I mean, today is November 1st, and I think they were calling that Roe 
November at one point, right? Yep. I mean, it didn't what would happen. In fact, I mean, just listen to what the Senate candidate out of North Carolina, Allison, had to say. I was speaking to her earlier about her stance on codifying Roe v. Wade. That's going to be a bit of a litmus test here going forward. Listen to this. Congressman Ted Budd is leading the charge and aligned himself with the most extreme faction of his party uh, on an absolute ban on abortion without exceptions for rape, incest, or risk to a mother's health. Anytime our freedoms are on the line, I will be fighting for North Carolina and for this country, and I will be fighting hard to make sure that Roe versus Wade becomes the law of the land. This is somebody who was the chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. I mean, there, this notion of Rovember and the idea of the true barometer of what's going to get people out to vote and distinguish the Cheneys from the Slotkins and others is, is going to be this issue of Rovember, ultimately, they, they think. Well, they need to keep reminding voters of that. I mean, because, yeah. you know, because the, the momentum, the Romentum oh, has... Oh, yeah. <laughs> has uh, passed, so I can see what she's doing there, which is reminding all the voters. Mm, this is still what I said. Reminding. Wow. Wow. We're on a roll, if you know what I mean. I got you covered. You got me fine. Wow. More of this, Laura, when we come back. I'm loving all of the, the dad jokes that are happening on your panel for some reason. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. I love it. It's a highlight of my night. But you know what's coming up ahead, everyone? I got to tell you, Allison, it's pretty stunning what we're hearing now, revelations about the brutal attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. I mean, while the, why the alleged attacker said he was on a suicide mission and the other people that he was also targeting. And plus, new tonight, the Capitol Police first learned of the attack at Pelosi's home about 10 minutes after through a live camera feed from their house. We're going to talk about it. Shocking new details about what happened during the brutal attack on Paul Pelosi. Newly released court document says the crime involved great violence and great bodily harm. It also details Pelosi's struggle with his attacker, revealing that he was left unconscious for about three minutes. Yeah, this is worse than we knew, Laura. Mm, I mean, the yeah. alleged attacker, I should mention, David DePap, appeared in San Francisco court today, but we didn't know these details. I mean, it sounds mm. like uh, a bigger struggle and that he was more grievously hurt than we thought. So uh, let's get to some answers. Joining us now is CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta and CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. John, I want to start with you because we have a lot more information today about the attack and what police saw and how it went down. This is from this new uh, court filing. This is the motion to detain DePap. Um, it says that basically what pol- when police entered, the two men were struggling with the hammer. Um, but Mr. Pelosi could not maintain his grip on the hammer. A second later, the defendant wrenched the hammer away from Mr. Pelosi, immediately stepped back and lunged at Mr. Pelosi, striking Mr. Pelosi in the head at full force with the hammer, which knocked Mr. Pelosi unconscious. The officers rushed into the house, tackled the defendant, and disarmed him. Mr. Pelosi remained unresponsive for about three minutes, waking up in a pool of his own blood. We didn't know how bad that was. Well, it's um, it was said early on that he was knocked out cold um, because there were questions about, well, why didn't we have his full account earlier? And they said because he was unconscious and then, you know, in intensive care. But the the detention memorandum is just filled with details that fill in all the blanks of some of the things we've been asking in a few days, which is 
um, he's asleep in bed, and he's literally woken up, uh, this is according to the affidavit, by Mr. DePap, who says, are you Paul Pelosi? Right, standing over his bed. Right. And he says, you know, where's Nancy? She's not here. Uh, when's she coming back? She's in Washington. It'll be a few days. And then he says, I'm going to tie you up. And Pelosi's account was, I was still groggy. I had just been awakened. And you can imagine in that lifestyle where there's always security people around and people coming and going that, you know, perhaps somebody who was on the wrong shift, you know, couldn't find Nancy Pelosi. But when the guy says, I'm going to tie you up, he realizes, okay, this isn't the detail. Um, he tries to get to the elevator. He's blocked. He goes to the bathroom because his phone's in there and it's on charge. And he calls 911. And the suspect, the pop, is standing three feet away from him. And he's having this conversation where he's trying to bridge the gap between being specific enough with the operator. There's a man. He's come to see my wife. It's Nancy Pelosi. I don't know him. And he said, you know, who is he? And the man answers, my name is David. And he says, and you don't know him? He said, I don't. And David says, no, we're friends. Mm -hmm. And he's got zip ties in one hand, a hammer in the other hand, takes him downstairs. He realizes the police are going to be there and that this is going to end differently than he planned. And when the police knock on the door, he's still got Mr. Pelosi by the arm, but he opens the door with his left hand Pelosi and does. steps back and then tries to grab the top of the hammer while he's holding the bottom and the rest of you... Just read to it's us. just more frightening than we thought. And I guess the reason I said, um, Sanjay, that we didn't know the extent of it was because in the very first statement that Speaker Pelosi's office put out, it said Mr. Pelosi was taken to the hospital where he's receiving excellent medical care. He's expected to make a full recovery. That made it seem as though, I think, it was more minor than a skull fracture and being unconscious for three minutes. Yeah. Well, I think it surprised me as well. There's a couple of reasons. Obviously, this was a significant sort of blow to the head. Now, when someone strikes you with the hammer, I mean, you could you could kill somebody uh, or you might cause a skull fracture, something like that, which it sounds like he had. What is sort of interesting is that the doctors, uh, as you read, even before he went to the operating room, they were already saying he's expected to make a full recovery. And now they have more data at this point. They've probably done scans of the brain, trying to determine was there bleeding that was on top of the brain or within the brain. And it sounds like, thankfully, there, there wasn't. So this blow to the head, which sounds like a, from that report of full, full force, so like really wound up. And you, know, you measure all sorts of things, the, the, the amount of force, the, the width of the actual hammer, which side of the hammer, all these things you'd want to know from a trauma perspective. But whatever it was, it certainly at least stunned him enough caused bleeding, obviously, but stunned him enough where it sounds like they had difficulty rousing him for at least a few minutes. Unconscious or not, that's a little bit difficult to tell sometimes in these situations, but it obviously caused a significant injury. But then he was able to wake up, answer questions ultimately and things like that. Scans done because they're worried, but not so concerned that they're not telling the family already he's going to make a full recovery. But why is he still in the ICU now? That's a good question. You know, what I would say is that sometimes it's it's based on, on medical reasons plus other, meaning, you know, ICUs are, are one of the most secure places in the hospital. You don't get as many people coming in and out, you know, if you're trying to uh, put security around it. So a lot of times, even if somebody is sort of maybe ready to go to a general care floor, or they would otherwise go to a general care floor, they might keep them in the ICU longer. He's 82 years old. I, I don't know what his other health is like, but there may be other things they're monitoring. He had anesthesia, had this wound to his head, had an operation on his skull. I think had had something done to his arms as well, or his yeah. right arm at least. So all these things may keep him there a little bit longer. But again, the fact that the doctor said expected to make a full recovery right away, 
they said that. Doctors are usually pretty conservative in this regard. If anything, you want to make sure all your I's are dotted and T's are crossed before you say something. They were confident enough that, that as bad as this was, that he was going to do okay. Okay, that helps us understand it. Uh, Sanjay, John, thank you both very yeah. much for all this latest information. Yeah. So uh, again, Laura, uh, it's just every day we get more information about this and it even gets scarier. The details get scarier if you imagine being yeah. woken up in that situation. I mean, all I keep going back to, an 82-year-old man hit with a hammer to the head. I mean, this is, I mean, just think about the backdrop of this. The motivation, not that there's any ever justification, but this is tied to political grievance. This is tied to what the DHS bulletin warned about months ago at this point, the idea of people feeling somehow entitled to resort to violence because they have a problem with what happens on the legislative floor. I mean, the idea that thinking about this is just so unbelievable. We're, you know, a few days away from the midterm elections, but that date's arbitrary for all intents and purposes at this point in time. It's about the reasons and what we're standing and what people stand for and what they're willing to do. It's just, it's really unbelievable. Yeah, and it's really unsettling, as we've talked about, that when you dehumanize the other side, then they deserve this. And so, obviously, uh, we pray for peaceful days between now and the midterms. Meanwhile, the former president's attorneys are in talks with the January 6th committee. So what are the chances that Donald Trump does end up testifying under oath? We have that next. All right, we've got big news tonight from the January 6th committee. Liz Cheney says that they're in discussions with the former president about, and his legal team about maybe getting him to testify under oath. Congressman laying out what the committee will be looking for. Be done potentially over multiple days. We have significant questions based on the evidence that we've developed and, and as I said, what we know already about uh, the extent to which he was personally and directly involved in every aspect of this effort. Willie Irwoni, joining me now, political analyst from CNN, Margaret Taleb, political commentator Paul Begala, and legal analyst Elliot Williams. I mean, we could do the Vegas odds here for a second, right? And the idea of him testifying under oath, and people will say, well, of course he won't. But then I wonder, would he try to grandstand? Would he try to have the opportunity if it were live? What do you think? Well, okay, when you say the word testify, do you mean at a hearing at 9 o'clock p.m. under the Klieg lights? No, I did this for... What is this? No, is, no, no, is? no, 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 no. I'm dead serious, though, because I did this for a long time working for the Justice Department. What you might find is a transcribed interview or a conversation in private with the committee, which is still an appearance before the committee. He's not testifying in a live hearing. His lawyers could never allow it, uh, and it just it's just not going to happen. I'd argue the opposite. I yeah. think he'd be much more likely to want to do. You said nine sure, o'clock no. under the lights. And I was like, you know what? I, that sounds like, but that's not what the committee wants. The committee wants him to actually answer questions under oath in a serious format that can't turn into like a runaway grandstanding event. And I think that is what is and it's also, it's going just, to happen. There's also just far bigger legal risk to him to the big bombastic uh, live public appearance. Like if they have the behind closed doors where they limit the number of staff, number of people in the room, which is the kind of stuff you negotiate before Congress. Yeah, you know, it's probably safer for him. If he's got any lawyer worth any salt whatsoever, they're advising him against a, a big percentage. But you now, know, course, Paul, Trump, right? a lawyer is only as good as if you listen to him, right? right? And that's not been the tradition we've seen. That's, that's the problem. And I think Trump has had some good lawyers, he's had some bad lawyers, but he's always done the wrong thing. Okay, he... He is the Muhammad Ali of lying. He's the goat. 
The, the Washington Post fact checker, Glenn Kessler, counted 30,573 lies. So the question, Elliot, to me is not, is he behind closed doors? Is he under the clique? Like, is, is he under oath? If so, no way. There's no way that man should testify. He's done it before. He had to admit under oath in a deposition. Uh, Tim O'Brien, the journalist, was being sued by Trump. He admitted under oath that, yes, he had lied 30 different times. They said, was this a lie? Yeah, it was. Was this a lie? Yeah, it was. How, he's got 30,000 to defend now. There's but Paul, no chance. But here's the difference. Doing. I mean, if you follow that thread for a second, what was the consequence of that? Oh, right? Trump, that's uh, and, and, that, always... so, and so the idea of, you know, a deterrent is your best bet. Little... But there's no, if there's no consequences here, then what? So, so yeah, maybe there's a little bit of chess being played by the committee here. Because, number one, you put him under oath and he testifies in lies. That's perjury. Right. If he doesn't agree to testify, okay, that's contempt of Congress. And you can still prosecute him for that, too. So either way, perhaps it could end in a criminal charge for him. Now, look, we all kind of know that contempt of Congress, it's a misdemeanor. It ain't a big deal. It, you know, whatever. But at the end of the day, he could get charged with it. He could get charged with it if he doesn't show up and doesn't but, agree to negotiate. He took the fifth 400 times with the New York Attorney General. If they force him to show up, which I don't think they will, right. they subpoena him. And I think that's a, the, the, it will run out the clock for us. So I, I just don't think there's any. It's Trump respiration. He can't help himself. He inhales air. He exhales lies. And there's no way you're going to stop him. So they should never allow, his lawyer should never allow him to testify. Margaret, I mean, politically, how do you, I mean, this is obviously not a prosecutorial body, right? They have to refer to DOJ. A lot is riding on whether or not they're going to have this committee. It's going to be good nighted, this committee. By the time the new Congress sits in, DOJ won't be good nighted. They'll still have the attorney general. So that's there. But what is the politics about this? I mean, you've got Congresswoman Liz Cheney, as you pointed out earlier, she won't be a sitting congressman any longer. She won't have the power to um, do anything besides speak about these issues. How do you see this playing out? I think... Politics aside, yes, I just said that the committee is dedicated to doing a fulsome investigation of what happened and providing a fulsome report. And if they are going to do a criminal referral, let's say a recommendation uh, to the Justice Department, or just for the sake of their final report, what becomes a piece of history, they have to do this. This is a matter of checking the box. They, They have to have given the president, not just the former president, not just the opportunity and the invitation, but to try to you know, put the heat on him to come and show up and do everything he's saying under oath. Are they going to do a knockdown, drag out fight to make that happen? I don't think they need to, but they do need to do the step that they're doing. A couple now. things. Well, if they were serious about really getting him to, to appear, they probably should have done this six or seven months ago. Now, look, it's November 1st today. There are three months until the new Congress is sworn in. If they want to go down the contempt road, give him a couple opportunities to show up, have his lawyers blow them off, and then file, file a contempt proceeding a couple weeks after that, charge him with a crime. I mean, remember, of course, the concessions that were made for Ginny Thomas, the wife of Justice Thomas, there was no transcript. It was, yep. there was, it was no audio. There was no videotape. I mean, if those the concessions the you give, right, and, and she wasn't, wasn't the president. So imagine if those the concessions that were done by lawyers in that instance, what's going to happen here. But Elliot, you're so wrong. President Trump never once delayed in providing <laughs> documents know. or anything. <laughs> the entire Mar-a-Lago scenario is just something very, very, very different on these issues. But Allison, you think about it. I mean, the odds here... We got one person saying, no way. The other saying, of course he will. Really, only Trump knows what he is prepared to do, which is really the name of the game for him. He may not know at this point either. Hmm. Sometimes he may make a snap decision. But far be it from me to disagree with Elliot, but... Steve Bannon is going to jail for four months. That's kind of a big deal for contempt of Congress. I mean, I know that we tend to think, oh, no big deal. I don't know. Four months out of your life in jail seems like 
that might, you know, be held over somebody's head. Yeah. So. Well, mm-hmm. also the calling of the bluff, right? I mean, part of it, one of the things he's often said, the former president, the idea of wanting to talk and they denied me an opportunity during the impeachments to really have a trial-like experience and testify and testify and all these discussions. Now here's your chance. I wonder if he will take it. Mm-hmm. We shall see. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Meanwhile, Players suspended, police investigating, criminal charges not out of the question after this fight between University of Michigan and Michigan State's football teams. We have an update. Tonight, four more Michigan State football players have now been suspended, bringing the total now to eight as police investigate the ugly off-the-field fight that happened after the game this weekend. The fight was caught on camera just after the Michigan Wolverines beat the Michigan State Spartans. Now, an angle obtained by ESPN showing what appears to be a player swinging his helmet. Officials from Michigan State say that they call this behavior, quote, unacceptable. Joining me now, former NFL wide receiver Dante Stallworth, CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan, and CNN senior political analyst Kirsten Powers. You know, you see this, and here we are in the backdrop talking about violence and the intersection of politics and the idea of hoping for civility. And you would think that sports might be the one reprieve. Obviously, that's not the case. And you're seeing violence among college students. Mind you, Dante, this is after the game. I wonder what you make of what you've seen here. It's terrible, uh, especially when you see another player uh, swinging his helmet at a helmetless player, a uh, defenseless player. Football is a violent sport. It, 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 it just is. It's, it's, in, in a, it's a violent sport, but that is supposed to be left onto the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will say that there has to be some kind of uh, some, some kind of uh, thing where they have to change these players walking in a, in the tunnel at the same time. Now, you you would expect them not to behave this way. And it, 99 percent of the time it does not happen. But in cases like this where, where it does happen, you would like to minimize any any type of situation that can arise out of players losing their heads and uh, and acting acting out like this. I mean, is it Pollyannish for some people to say, oh, you know what, we can just tell them this was wrong, you shouldn't do this, and not need to have to conform the entire stadium or the entry and the egress on that very note. But you point out, I mean, if this is the reality, what does that say about what is happening behind the scenes where and we the mentality? Are, where we are in sports today, because your point is well taken, Laura. The idea that sports on the field of play, there's a winner, there's a loser, you can shake hands. Uh, women and men learning life lessons. I mean, that really is happening in sports in a lot of places. That's not what happened here. I grew up going to games at Michigan Stadium, watched incredible emotion. You were, played the game college pro. Uh, you know what that's like. Um, and you just cannot have that happen. Obviously, these guys are suspended. There is punishment. The right things are happening now. But all the wrong things happened to get us to this point. You are seeing this, and on a larger scale, taking a step back, Kirsten, on the idea of just how much sports is under the microscope for a variety of things. And we're talking about the way in which things happening in the NBA, for example. You've got an NBA player, Kyrie Irving, um, being um, you know, vilified in some respects for retweeting and having the presumption of anti-Semitism. You've got players responding. You've got you know, people on the court and having these issues talking about it. I mean, we are seeing more and more that it's under the microscope. And I, I just want to play for a second because there was this moment where um, Charles Barkley is speaking about what happened on this issue of Kyrie Irving. Listen to this, and I want you to respond. 
I think the NBA dropped the ball. In what way? Uh, I think he should have been suspended. Uh, I think Adam should have suspended him. First of all, Adam's Jewish. You can't take my $40 million and insult my religion. I can't believe that we ain't talking about that. We're talking about this idiot. And when you say, when, when you, if I say, hey, I'm agreeing with this movie, this book or whatever, I'm agreeing with it. I, I'm not going to put, I, first of all, you know I don't do any social media, but when you're somebody as great as basketball like him, people going to listen to you what you say. I mean, this is the idea that he um, he tweeted and shared anti-Semitic content mm -hmm. on social media. That's the controversy around what he's done. But his point, the idea of the platform and the responsibility yeah. of the platform. You take this very serious. I know in your book, um, talking about political grace and the idea of it and what happens, the toxicity of social media, we're not talking about the sports. We're talking about what's happening on the sidelines, yeah. and it's consequential. Well, I think the reason is they're, that they're under a microscope is because they're heroes for the most part in our culture, right? Athletes are, are heroes in our culture. Children look up to them. Grown people look up to them. And so when you have that kind of um, responsibility, you really, I mean, look, you shouldn't, I don't care who you are, you shouldn't be tweeting out anti-Semitic things. But if you're somebody in a position like that, where people are looking up to you as a role model and as a hero, then you have an even higher standard. And I, I think that what we see a lot in sports, I'm not a big sports person, I don't follow a lot of sports, but it is pretty clear to me that there has been a lack of accountability, right? Because they're heroes and because, um, you know, there's been a lot of excuses that have been made for, for athletes along the way. And I I think that we've gotten to a point in culture where people are starting to say, you know, we're not going to make so many excuses for you anymore. We're actually going to hold you to higher standards. Should they be held to a higher standard, Dante, as an athlete? I think they should hold themselves to a higher standard. I, I think when we put people on a pedestal um, and something of this nature happens, it just kind of reminds us that they're human as well. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously not an endorsement, but of, of what he did or what he said. But I think, too, that uh, holding ourselves higher to a, to a higher standard, uh, that means that when you're doing your research, you're not looking at someone else's YouTube video and considering that research. You actually have to read books. You need to uh, learn from professors and people who have dedicated their lives to understanding uh, certain philosophies and things that I think where he was trying to get across, but, it, but it obviously it didn't come off that way. And anyone who has seen the video knows that that video is just is filled with anti-Semitic tropes and things that uh, that are in the conspiracy world of, of Jewish people and how they control the planet and all this other craziness. I mean, Allison, imagine that. The onus being on people to be responsible and the information that they disseminate. I mean, I, mean, I, I wow. How high of a standard Shocking. is it to ask I mean, not to tweet anti-Semitic things? You know, that should, I'm not sure that's actually a high standard. And I, and I totally yet, agree with Dante. I mean, of course you have to be, you have to know what you're putting out there in the world. You just have to. You have to be responsible for that. Well, we'll see if it works in politics, too. Um, OK, meanwhile, President Biden is hitting the campaign trail. So we're going to tell you his midterm message for the country next. <music> President Biden out on the trail in Florida today. His midterm message is that democracy is on the ballot. Their extremism isn't limited to social programs in the economy. They're coming after your right to vote and who get to count to vote. No, for real. You got 350 or so election deniers on the ballot, on the Republican ticket. No, this is really deadly earnest, man. Democracy is on the ballot this year, along with your right to choose. 
I mean, Laura, there really are two distinct messages, at least. I mean, you hear from the Republicans. It's about inflation. It's about the economy. It's about what you can put on your kitchen table. And then you hear from President Biden that, yeah, those things are important, but not as important as democracy. And without democracy, all everything else is up for grabs. And those are just, you know, the choices for, you know, for voters right now. It's true. And I think there's a part that he mentioned, which is the idea of it's not just the right to vote, it's the right to have that vote counted. And you think about that's what the election denialism has really been about, right? The idea, the fear is not for many people about whether you won't have access to the ballot, although originally that was part of the discussions happening. But really, it's now about the idea of will it be counted and will somebody actually support the results? That's the key to all of this. We'll see what happens. And who will be doing the counting? Right. Democracies in the counting. Listen, everyone weigh in on what we've been talking about tonight. Tweet us at Allison Camerata and at the Laura Coates. Use the hashtag CNN Sound Off. We'll be right back. In case you hadn't noticed, one week from tonight, polls are going to close all across the country. We'll be following the votes all night long and probably the following days after that right here on CNN. Now, starting tonight, we're going to focus on some of the key races that are going to decide the future of this country. So tonight we begin with Battleground Georgia. And CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton is here with us. He's awake. He's live. He's at the magic wall. He's fired up and ready to go, as we can see. Okay, Harry, we love having you here. So tell us what's happening in the Georgia Senate race. I mean, look, look how close this is. This is the forecast for the Georgia Senate race. Herschel Walker with 49 percent. Raphael Warnock with 49 percent. Normally, we don't include libertarian candidates, but I have here Chase Oliver at 2 percent. Why? Because the rules in Georgia basically stipulate that if the leading candidate does not, in fact, get a majority of the vote on Election Day in November, there will, in fact, be a runoff come December. And right now, the forecast suggests that neither Herschel Walker nor Raphael Warnock will, in fact, reach that majority of the vote. But I just want to point out how important Georgia is in terms of winning control of the United States Senate. If Herschel Walker wins the Democrats' chance of retaining control of the Senate, just 26 percent. If Raphael Warnock wins, look at that. It jumps up to 76%. So whoever wins Georgia has a pretty good shot of controlling the Senate overall. And here's the only other thing I'll sort of point out. The fact that Georgia is so close. Look at all of these races right now. Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, all within three points. Democrats must win probably three of these four races. And right now, it's just way too close to call. I know. This is your Super Bowl, baby. I know how excited you are about this. Okay, tell us about the Georgia governor's race. Yeah, so if the Georgia Senate race is too close to call, uh, the Georgia governor's race, uh, not really. So uh, this is the forecast of the Georgia governor's race. Brian Kemp with 53 percent. Stacey Abrams, the Democrat, at just 45 percent. At this particular point, it looks like Kemp will get well above that 50 percent to avoid the runoff that would occur if he, in fact, got less than that or if Abrams and he got both less than that. So at this point, while the Senate race looks tight, the governor's race, Brian Kemp is the clear favorite heading into Election Day. Harry Anton, thank you very much. Great to have you on the program. My pleasure. Okay, Laura, I think this calls for a dueling panel to, I to think dissect so. what's going on in Georgia. Yes. I hear them getting excited behind you right now. They Just are. know that we're going to be throwing in soon in a moment here. We're we'll going to start with you. We've got five minutes on the clock, remember. Oh, I'm not I giving you any more time. Four. four. And Laura, I four only have minutes. four minutes. All right, okay. fine. Well, oh, you didn't know the message? I guess she gets four minutes. I, oh, sorry. <laughs> All right, four minutes. Set the clock, please. <laughs> I, I'm going to bring in Essie Cup, <laughs> LZ Granderson, and John Avalon. Guys, I'm okay. Ready. I'm ready. 
Now, I'm also going to waste some time uh, playing this new anti-Biden ad that Stephen Miller of child separation at the border fame, Trump aide, is putting out about how he believes that Biden is anti-white. When did racism against white people become okay? Joe Biden put white people last in line for COVID relief funds. Kamala Harris said disaster aid should go to non-white citizens first. Liberal politicians block access to medicine based on skin color. Progressive corporations, airlines, universities, all openly discriminate against white Americans. Racism is always wrong. The left's anti-white bigotry must stop. I have to read this statement from Stephen Miller's uh, outlet called America First Legal. Our advertisements make the point that racism is always wrong, regardless of who it is targeted against. Does it? The goal of our educational advertisements that AFL is running simply informs the American people about something they all know to be true in 2022, but that major news outlets fail to report on. No one should face racial discrimination, regardless of the circumstances. Essie, um, he thinks that airlines and corporations discriminate against white people. His victimization... His level of victimization knows no bounds. You know, this this kind of garbage is partly why we are here today with Paul Pelosi in the hospital, with um, a shortage on election workers because they're too afraid to go and do their job, with judges and public officials and lawmakers needing extra security because of death threats um, and threats to their family. Because Trump and Republicans some years ago decided to tell every white man in America to be afraid of everybody else and to be angry at everybody else. And everybody else is coming for you. And that meant the media was lying to you. Minorities are coming for your jobs. Women are coming to emasculate you. Um, the deep state is coming to, I don't know, raid Mar-a-Lago. Whatever it was, they were coming for you and you need to hate them. And the white male grievance machine has brought us here to very scary times. So that ad, that ad is the culmination of, and I think sort of the, um, the trigger, the catalyst of so much of this awful political rhetoric and violence. Elsie, this is running in Georgia right now. And I'm so confused. Does Stephen Miller want voters to vote for <laughs> Herschel Walker or would he prefer they vote for a white candidate? I don't know. I, I just think Stephen Miller is just throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks. No, I think but, this no. is but, but calculated. I, but I will say yeah. this. I don't yeah. think it is a, you know, a sort of like reiteration of something. This is a continuation mm-hmm. of something. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. it's a continuation that really began since Reconstruction mm-hmm. with birth of a nation. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to take it all the way back there. The very first thing they did sure. was set up a structure of white grievance. Black people are coming. They're coming to get you. And that message has been used over and over again in a variety of different ways. Stephen Miller is just the latest of the continuation. This is not new. Yeah, white grievance politics and the idea that, that you know, that that uh, any, anything is, everything is discriminating against white people and giving black special rights. And this literally goes back to Andrew Johnson vetoing the Civil Rights mm-hmm. Act in the 1860, 1865, 1866. So, you know, this is Jesse Helms versus Harvey Gantt, the ad where the, 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 the black hand takes away the white guy's paycheck. This is a distillation of white grievance politics we've seen. And, 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 and I guess, you know, kudos to actually just really distilling it that well. But this is the kind of BS we see all the time. And it's just rank racism. And so, but again, in Georgia, that, how, who does this help? We know exactly what it's about. It's not, this, this isn't arguing intelligently against affirmative action. 
Okay. <laughs> let's, let's do that. Make that. Panel, thank you very much for that. Laura, fascinating. And I'm sorry that Stephen Miller ate up a minute of my time there. I, yeah. Well, if any time, all that stuff. But right now I have with me today Dante Stallworth, David Safavian, and Kirsten Powers. They're all back with me right now. We'll start the clock because it's obviously apparent right now that race is a huge part of this particular election, particularly in Georgia. Remember this moment in reaction to what they were saying earlier. The Senator Lindsey Graham had to say about Walker, the disruption of the so-called liberal narrative. Listen to this. We're a party of racists, Sean. Me and you are racist. The Republican Party's racist. Well, what happens when the Republican Party elects and nominates Herschel Walker, an African-American black Heisman Trophy winner, right? Olympian. It destroys the whole narrative. They're scared to death of Herschel Walker because if Herschel Walker becomes a Republican, maybe every other young child in America of color might want to be a Republican. Mm, is that the fear? Is that the goal? <laughs> is that the thought here? What do you think? You're laughing. Uh, no, it's just the grievance, right? It's just this grievance of like, oh, poor us. Like people call us racist or the complaints about the, you know, anti-white racism. Like anti-white racism is not a thing. Like that doesn't exist, right? I mean, racism is systemic. It's something that's backed by power. It's institutional. There is no institutional racism. There is no power structure that is organized against white people. Like it it just doesn't exist. So this is just the story that Republicans are telling. And, you know, it's not true that everybody runs around calling them racist all the time. When people do racist things, people say that. And so I think, you know, it just feels like he's using Herschel Walker right there. You know, he's just sort of pointed to him like, look, we're going to use him to prove that we're not racist, which is also another one of these things that people say, oh, I can't be racist because my best friend's black or whatever it is. It's like, guess what? You actually can be racist and support Herschel Walker. It's a lot more complicated than that. I'm not saying you are, but I'm just the idea that he's saying, like, I can't be is ridiculous. I hear you. What do you think? Why is this being the, the narrative? Is it because it's working? Well, I don't I don't know if it's working. I mean, if you look at the polling numbers, they're they're neck and neck. Right. You know, it's forty nine, forty nine, too. Um, you know, the, the, I, I turn I turn around a little bit, Kirsten, you know, and I look at some of the attacks that Herschel suffered. Right. And and they're consistent with some of the attacks that we've seen on other African-American conservatives, you know, Clarence Thomas, Byron Donalds. I mean, heck, the Congressional Black Caucus is now supporting a white liberal progressive congressman from Gary, Indiana, over an African-American woman veteran who happens to be a Republican. So, you know, I I think that there's a lot of race injected into all of this unnecessarily. And, you know, it'd be really nice if we got back on who's qualified Who's the best representative of my personal beliefs? Because that's who I'm going to elect. Well, the thing about that, though, Dante, is um, I think they would often argue that the reason they're not supporting is not because being of the same race as some of the affinity organizations is not automatically qualify you or endear you. It has to be the qualifications. Yeah, it does. And when you look at, you know, what Herschel Walker is and what he's done throughout his life, it doesn't add up. It doesn't compare to what Raphael Warnock has done. He's dedicated his life, his entire life. He has a lifetime of service. And so when when the GOP comes out there and says that, uh, you know, Herschel Walker is going to be um, the one that that young black children look up to, it's just it's just not true. And I think that we've seen that, through, you know, throughout this entire campaign where where the black community more so identifies with Raphael Warnock, someone who has uh, given a, a lifetime of service, someone who is speaking out for student debt, someone who is uh, speaking out for um, for health care, universal health care, all these things that. 
that most black Americans identify with in the South, uh, they do not identify with Herschel Walker at all. So I wonder if it comes down to the idea, of, uh, the assumption that as long as you put a black candidate up, you will assume you will have a particular demographic that will follow. It's not filled with dreams. If you build it, they don't obviously just necessarily vote. On that Kevin Costner reference, boom. Well, Laura, well, the timing is impeccable. But also, your panel was so provocative that our panel wanted in. Do you have some Herschel, <laughs> Herschel Walker? LZ. You take it, LZ. These aren't the rules. Wait, this no, is no, I, I'm about. inventing new rules. rules. <laughs> new rules. Go. Is Ray Liotta coming out of the outfield all of a sudden and James Jones? No, I know the Field of Dreams reference. It ends there. Fine. Okay. <laughs> Th- thank you. This will, this will be good. Go. I would just simply say when it comes to Herschel Walker is that his positioning right now is the epitome of racism to me. How so? Because he is clearly not qualified for this position. And yes, they did just prop up anyone that they could control because they know once they have him in place, he's going to vote the way they want him to and he won't represent where he's coming from. And that's actually literally the argument that's being made. Well, maybe maybe he did pay for some abortions, but we know he'll vote yes. along Mitch McConnell's line. That's the argument that's being made. So if the argument is let's get past race, and by the way, we should have much more racial and, and religious diversity between the two parties. But if the argument is we got to get past that and focus on qualifications, well, you just owned yourself. Okay. Mm. I told you it was worth it. <laughs> okay. I mean, the owned comment, wonderful. I love it. The, I mean, all, all of it's a, par- a perfect conversation and conversation we're going to keep having. Guess what, Allison? We've got seven days to go. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you're keeping tabs because I have no Every idea day. what day it is. But we do want to know what you all think about the Georgia race and whether it will actually decide control of the Senate. You can tweet us at the Laura Coates and at Allison Camerata. We'll be right back. We have some new video tonight that shows federal agents firing pepper ball projectiles to push Venezuelan migrants back into Mexico. This was at the southern border near El Paso, Texas, on Monday. And that's where officials say several migrants became combative, with at least one throwing a rock, injuring an agent, another reportedly assaulting an agent with a flagpole. So let's talk about the border situation, what's really happening. We're back with S.E. Cup, CNN political commentator. Maria Cardona is joining us. We have John Avalon here as well. John, um, are enough Democrats talking about what's happening at the border? I mean, Republicans are talking about it every day. But why aren't Democrats talking about this? Democrats should be playing offense on the border, offense when it comes to uh, immigration, Mm -hmm. offense when it comes to crime. I mean, you know, there's no reason to cede these issues. No one, this whole fiction that Democrats are in favor of open borders is total BS. And there's a lot of ways to measure that. One of which is, you know, there were record high number of apprehensions at the border last year. I want to stress the word apprehensions. That implies enforcement. (laughs) Now, it's not it's not working. The border is a mess. But Democrats should be trying to own it and say that, you know what, we want to pass a bipartisan comprehension for comprehensive reform. (laughs) And and you're not probably going to get that from folks on the far right. But they're not. And that's a big mistake. I don't get why they're not doing that, Maria. They should be talking about it more. And in fact, when Republicans bring it up as a point of criticizing Democrats, they are talking about it because, John, you're absolutely right. The history is that Democrats have always been the one that have offered comprehensive immigration reform. And in the last 10 years, it has been Republicans, the ones that have completely shut the door on it. In 2013, it was John Boehner that famously told Barack Obama, Mm -hmm. I am not going to bring this up on the floor because I cannot have this pass with majority Democratic votes. Mm -hmm. In 2017, if you all remember, Donald Trump had the opportunity to be a transformational president 
on comprehensive immigration reform. He was looking at a deal where he would legalize the millions of undocumented immigrants that were here in exchange for billions, billions, 25 billion to be exact, that Chuck Schumer offered him for that deal. <clears throat> then who got involved? You guys were talking about him earlier. Stephen Miller. Miller. And he said, absolutely not. So yeah. twice, shut the door. It was Republicans. Democrats have always been at the table to get this done. And that's what we need to do. And yet the narrative, as you well know, and maybe you have something to say about this, is that, you know, Democrats don't care about the border. Vice, Pre you know, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, who is tasked with it, you know, Republicans paint her as being sort of asleep at the switch. Yeah. And so what's gone wrong here? I think that immigration has become too valuable a wedge issue for both parties to actually solve it. There's not a reason we can't solve our immigration problems. Um, but look, closed borders and kids in cages, that's not um, a policy solution. Nor sanctuary cities. That's not a policy solution either. And um, instead, both sides really, I think, use immigration to fearmonger, make people afraid, and it keeps these problems. What we saw is heartbreaking. You can't assault border cops, and it's heartbreaking that these people are fleeing awful yeah. circumstances and being thrown back into Mexico. This is heartbreaking all around. And um, I but I'm wish. not sure how I hear what you're saying about yeah. it being a, a, a very handy boogeyman for election years, for yeah. sure. But how does it benefit Democrats? Oh, because then they get to say the Republicans are, are, are you know, going to jail except, migrants, send them home. Except, All things Republicans except, have done. But listen, I, you know, the, the back and forth, it's very much to me like the gun debate. The back and forth of you're this, you're awful, you're a murderer. Um, you're, you're for this, you're for that. You want to break the Constitution. It gets us nowhere. And I've seen that because I've covered this for as long as you have. I've seen this kind of argument happen over and over and over again. Except for, I would say, we can't really both sides of this because yep. Democrats were on the verge of doing this. They were looking at the Republicans. There were eight Republicans in the Senate that were ready to pass this in 2013, and they did. They did. They, they right. did. Right. And some of those same ones are in Congress right now, right. and they were like, they there's no way in hell we would do this today. Be right. So, so, so it is, it's not both parties, SC. And in fact, well, no, Democrats no. would love to solve this. I'm not this. both sidesing, but the Democrats throwing wrenches into, quote-unquote, comprehensive, you know, comprehensive immigration reform bills in order to make it impossible for Republicans— but we were right off, there. Is a we thing were right too there. That, wasn't, that Democrats that have done. That wasn't an impossibility for Republicans Look, to sign on when John Boehner said to, no. To it was completely political. Definitionally, to get any kind of comprehensive immigration reform, you're not going to get the far left. You're not going to get no. the far right, and that's more than fine. You know what? You're going to have to do a lot more money for border security. Yep. You're going to have to finish Trump's wall, perhaps, and you're going to find a way to legalize the undocumented in this country yep. and get a pathway to citizenship, but also work visas, that's right. legal status that's right. is what most immigrants visas. want. Yes. They want and, legal yes. status. You know, George W. Bush tried to pack this, and he got attacked from the yeah. right. Um, and, yeah, and, and, right. you know, and so let's not forget that piece of this yeah. puzzle, too. Yeah. And, but, and, yeah. and sanctuary yeah. cities, by the way, is, mm -hmm. has never for Democrats been a solution. It has been something that has been necessary because immigrants have been attacked so horrifically in so many of these places that they had to come up with something so that there would actually not— But it hasn't not been temporary— no. There's well, been a long time well, to solve this. And they, well, because the sanctuary it hasn't been city solved, SE. And they will that's exist. That's exactly my point. They will exist until We've lived this with these non-solution solutions yeah, for but, but hold on. I just want to uh, follow up on something you said, John. The wall, that's interesting. It's interesting to think about how you might have to finish Trump's wall because it's been demonized, as you know, by the Democrats, who at one time 
actually, you know, decades ago thought that that might be a solution. Well, the Democrats and have proposed more money for border security for yes. sure. But yeah, if you want a really good faith pass a comprehensive immigration reform, you're going to have to give something to Republicans that yeah. gives them cover. And, 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 and by the way, $25 billion in security was something but, but, and it's that the, we were giving. But the symbolism of the wall is powerful to some folks. Fine. But the, the important thing is we need to stop demagoguing this issue and exactly. start dealing yes. with it. Exactly right. And that's going to mean both sides Look. are going to give and the far left and the far right aren't going to like it. And that's fine. But Look. don't you agree with SC that for the Republicans and she's saying also the Democrats, it's too handy of an election wedge issue. It can't be. No, no. and, and, and I have I, I have to say, Allison, for for Democrats, it's not. And th- this is this is an issue that is personal to me as an immigrant. I understand. I know these people that are desperate and that are coming over, fleeing fascism. By the way, yes. right? This well, is, I mean, the, the they're fleeing Maduro. They're right there, right? Yeah. Absolutely are, are right. people that Republicans should want to embrace and come over here and and nurture refugee status, refugee status, asylum. But this is part, frankly, of the ultra extremist MAGA faction of the Republican Party that has said absolutely no more absolutely. immigrants or migrants. It's, it's a cultural. Thanks. It's a cultural. It is. And and first of all, I mean, God bless people, you know, fleeing Maduro's regime, Ortega's regime. These are major problems that Mm -hmm. are fueling this. But also, if you're coming here for refugee status, you deserve. Don't attack the Border Patrol with with the foreign flag, for God's sake. It's ridiculous. Yeah, obviously. Um, Okay, Laura. You know, it's it's pretty incredible to think about where you are, Allison, in the conversations. I'm, I'm sitting here listening and thinking about these notions and immigration. I mean, this is such a lightning rod conversation and one in which I think will be the evergreen conversation in the ballot box. In fact, Jim Jordan, the congressman from Ohio, was talking about this. And I asked him the question of, look, what if Republicans are the ones to get the majority? What's the plan to address these issues? Great All question. These the boogeyman. Here's his response. So how do you intend as a, as a Republicans, if you're in majority, to, to you, you call it a totally open border, which, you know, you have to agree, it is a hyperbole. But how do you intend to curb illegal immigration? What would you call 2.3 million people who come into our country? The, the half a million, quote, known gotaways is the, tech, is the term of art used by the, uh, Homeland Security. And then all the people we don't know about. What would you call that if that's not just an open? What, what, what would you say? How is that not going from a secure border to no border? I mean, but I, you I, attribute I, I, it exclusively it to the Biden administration. That we actually have a secure border. And, but yet my orcas will stand and <laughs> he'll sit in front of our committee and say the border is secure. You just want to laugh at the guy. The border is secure and you can't answer a question about the status of people on the terrorist watch list. So well, the, the, the answer is to go back to the policies that were working. But the left can't do that because because no, no, no. Those were Trump policies. Those were conservative policies. Those were common sense policies that the country actually wanted. But no. So, so the left can't go back to that. And that's why, we're again, we're in this ridiculous situation. I mean, Allison, for anyone who tells you that the Trump shadow is not still looming on these issues, I mean, it's always a notion of your panel was talking about the whataboutism and what's happening. I mean, this is the conversation people are really having about open borders, about who was able to curb it best, about the crisis or the non-crisis. This is what people are talking about. Yeah. And I mean, as our panel was just noting, you know, Congressman Jim Jordan is a little slippery. He does. Yeah. yeah, You had a great question for him and everybody was all ears, Laura. And he (laughs) says, like, let's go back to the policies. But he 
conveniently doesn't spell out what those policies. Kids in cages? Be. Is that yeah, what that, it wants to go yeah, back go to? Ahead, yeah, when but, was but, the good old but, days? Right, was working. Yeah. Right, but, but yeah, exactly. I mean, first of all, we can't, you need comprehensive immigration reform to get this done. But actually, ironically, part of the thing that the Biden team has reluctantly, they've fought this, but Title 42 has actually led just yeah. to wonk out on everybody for a second. Yeah. That has led to a high degree of recidivism and crossing the border. Yes. Because yeah. people are not processed. Yeah. They're just so. So actually, it's part of the Trump policies that are currently in place that are leading to the recidivist across the border. Laura. Just real talk. I mean, look, I'm going to tell you something. I want my panel to weigh in because we are <laughs> champing at the bit over here and going, we want in, we want in, and we're going to come I back know that after feeling. a quick break. You know that you know feeling. I know it's coming right now. We're going to talk about this with our panel as well in just a moment. And by the way, President Obama was also speaking. We're going to talk a little bit about what he had to say as well on the other side of a break, Allison. We'll be right back. When I had a test in math, and, and uh, sometimes I, I didn't study hard enough, <laughs> might have stayed up too late the night before, and, and, and it'd be nice if you could just write down eight on, for every answer. You just had the same answer over and over again. Except, you know what? That's the wrong answer. And the Republican policies, are, they're not going to help you. But... That's why Democrats actually have plans to take on drug companies to lower prices, to get the oil industry to clean up its act, to pass laws to make housing more affordable, to make sure big corporations are creating jobs in Nevada instead of overseas. They've got a plan. That's the choice in this election. That's what this is about. Margaret Taliff, David Savavian, and Kirsten Powers are all back with me. I mean, that is the, the choice that many are presenting, the idea of those who have the opportunity to plan and those who have a chance to criticize. When you look at this, is that what you're seeing as the choice that's actually having for the American people? Well, you know, I look at that. I look at Obama out there, and the person I feel most sorry for is Joe Biden. Um, because mm. he fails, he, he pales by comparison. You know, the fact that Biden is not there, Obama is... That tells you a little bit more about the White House, how this White House is thinking, and what its internal polls look like. Um, you know, I come back to Obama, and he's, I got to say, he's a, he's a likable guy. I see him on screen, and I want to go have a beer with him until he starts attacking Republicans, and then I, I start backing off. But uh, he's an incredibly effective communicator, uh, and I think he highlights just all those challenges that Biden and, and the Biden White House are dealing with. Is a criticism justified, Kirsten? Which one? Of Republicans? And the failure and absence of a plan? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there has, the Republicans have been very, very good at fear-mongering, right? About saying, here are the things that are wrong. And a lot of the things are legitimately wrong. Some of them they're exaggerating, but they are focusing on things that are scaring people. But Obama's right. Like, they're not telling you that they're going to do anything different. It's not like they're going to solve that problem. They're just basically pinning every problem in the world on Joe Biden, whether it's his his fault or not, right? I mean, you can't really blame Joe Biden for inflation, right? It's not something that just happened because of something Joe Biden did. It, It happened for a lot of different reasons. He's the president. He'll be held accountable for it. But I think what Democrats are starting to argue, and that I think Obama's good at arguing, is basically... 
But what are Republicans going to do about it? Because that's not really what they talk about. They no, just but, attack Democrats. But but just let's 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 take a quick time out here because Democrats control you know the White House, the Senate, and and the House. They drove all of the in, the inflation driving legislation through over the last two years. Well, that's debatable. I mean, it's debatable well, it's that it's inflationary. Debatable. It's Is it the, the, but that's not that. But if you were to go back to look at what economists say caused inflation, it's not just a bill that was passed by Democrats. You can ask Larry Summers, much, who came no, back out. Well, I don't think Larry Summers would say that that one bill is responsible entirely for inflation. I think he would probably say that there are other things that contributed it, like supply chain issues, the fact that we had a global pandemic, and all of these other things. Right. So, yeah, there's plenty of criticism to go around. But what I'm saying is that it's not something that if the Republicans were there, that they would be able to snap their fingers and fix. But here we are. I mean, a point I think you're going to make probably, too, is the point of the midterms or point of talking points is to be reductive. Right. The idea of trying to condense and synthesize in a way that is eliciting and evoking a visceral reaction. And that's part of what's happening. The midterms are a test for the party in power and Democrats, by the thinnest of margins, are the party in power through a global pandemic that's driven malaise and major entrenched economic problems. And all of those right now are overpowering what Democrats were hoping could be uh, a debate about women's rights or reproductive rights or, um, you know, democracy or any of these other things. Every time you fill up the gas pump, you know, you're faced with uh, the implications of this. Every time you pay your grocery bills, you're faced with the implications of this. And whether or not it's Democrats' fault or whether or not it would have happened to a Republican president and a marginally Republican-led Congress doesn't matter because right now it's a referendum on the party in power. So that's where we are. But I think when you are um, when you're making the closing arguments for the Democratic Party, you're trying to do two things. And one is you're trying to convince persuadable voters that they should care more about certain issues and less about other issues. And then you're also trying to turn out your base. You know, you're trying to turn out people who may believe very strongly in the Democrats case that the Democrats are the better representatives of them, but may feel deflated, unenthusiastic, may feel that it's already you know over. And so it's two different groups you're trying to turn out. Obama, to your point, is a very effective communicator. And I want to hear him one more time here because he actually is speaking about an issue, and I appreciate the civility of this conversation. <laughs> he actually addresses the idea of the rhetoric, and it's not what's happening at this table. <laughs> and then you've got this erosion of just basic civility. And, 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 and democratic norms. You got politicians who, instead of wanting to bring people together, do their best to stir up division and make us angry and afraid of one another, all for their own advantage. And, and, and all of this gets amped up, it gets hyped up 24-7 on social media because they find it more profitable to stir up controversy and conflict than to lift up the truth and facts. I mean, this idea of divisive rhetoric and what's happening, I mean, there is a lot of truth to the idea that there is something, there is some form of an appetite for the rhetoric, and it's being exploited. Who, though, is the question that people ask at the polls, who is to blame for that incitement? Everyone. Everyone's to blame for that incitement. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when I surf on social media... I, I, I have to check myself because I'm always looking for things that reinforce my own views, right? Mm. And then we all get into that feedback loop, and next thing you know, we think our neighbor is, you know, the Antichrist. But at the end of the day, 
uh, it's it's a little bit hard to swallow uh, that the the White House has clean hands here when you look at you know just what was it two months ago Joe Biden marched out in front of that big red bra- backdrop and was basically beating the snot out of MAGA Republicans uh, for a guy that campaigned as being the great uniter it's a little hard to swallow. What do you think? Well, I don't. I mean. I have to say, I think that Joe Biden, as far as politicians go, ranks pretty high on the civility test. You know, he's somebody who does speak kindly about people of the other party. It's something that he ran on. I think that in order to unite a country, you have to have people who want to unite. (laughs) And I'm not sure that there's really people who are buying what he's selling and criticizing you know, MAGA Republicans is not criticizing all Republicans. I mean, there are lots of Republicans who don't necessarily agree with that. And I think that there are some highly problematic things that have happened. I think, you know, I don't I think that Donald Trump, I guess you would disagree with me, has played an outsized role in kind of creating this more divisive environment in the way that he spoke as president and sort of and there are a lot of people that follow his lead. But I also think you're right that we're all responsible for what we do and we're, we don't we don't we can't use that as an excuse. Right. We can't say because somebody does something, then then it's OK for us to behave that way. Well, let me say I've been I've been wondering to see, Allison, what the former president Obama had to say about this vicious, brutal attack on the speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi's husband. And he actually he weighed in on this point tonight, speaking about the civility and the rhetoric and the consequences. Listen to this. A friend of mine, Mr. Paul Pelosi, was attacked viciously. Somebody broke into his home looking for his wife, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House. And thankfully, I, I spoke to Paul a couple of days ago, and I, he's going to be okay. But, but, it, but even as investigators do their job, find out what exactly motivated this this person, one thing's clear. This increasing habit of demonizing political opponents creates a dangerous climate. And, and elected officials who do not explicitly reject or participate in over-the-top rhetoric, if that's what they're doing instead of... If, if, if they just ignore or make light of that kind of violence, or if they encourage their supporters to stand outside voting places armed with guns and dressed in tactical gear, if that's the environment that we create, more people are going to get hurt. I mean, Allison, obviously it bore repeating. He mentioned it on Friday, talking about it again today, because we know this is a perpetual notion, unfortunately, the idea of the consequences of this rhetoric. And I also heard him say something interesting there. Um, He said we. He said we Mm. a lot. And I think that that's a device that you use when you're trying to unite as opposed to saying they, they, they always do this. I think that he was just saying if that's the climate we're creating. And so I just think even in in that little way, there is a way to not demonize and, you know, put somebody into that other category. The great orator, many say, for those very reasons, those were devices to acknowledge the all in together. But will it actually be appreciated by the electorate in the end, end game? 
How many days from now, Allison? Seven days away. Okay. Still. Okay. It's still seven days. <laughs> All right. Um, but now, now, I think you're really going to enjoy this next segment hmm. because I know that it is something you and I have bonded over. Yep. And I think every human being has some frustration. And we're about to talk about it because from grocery stores to pharmacies to airports, we're all doing our own checkout. Ooh. Why? Whatever happened to humans? I miss humans. <laughs> <laughs> our panel has a lot to say about this next. Oh, my gosh. Have you gone into a supermarket or drugstore lately, Laura? Yep. If so, you have probably been asked to scan your own items at a self-checkout. And if you're like me, (laughs) that makes you want to run screaming out of the store. Huh. Well, how about when that machine actually stops letting you scan your items and that and you have to call someone over to help you? Does it also make you want to scream? That happened to me this morning. Indeed it does. And what about when you're checking your bags at an airport? Wouldn't it help to talk to a human? To put it plainly, <laughs> I miss humans. <laughs> I've actually got that little sticker stuck on my clothing before I got on a flight. It's a whole mess. But if all of this Sounds like you out there. Well, guess what? You're not alone. Washington Post columnist Rick Riley is out with a piece today titled, Dear Grocery Store Owners, I don't work for you. He says, why do I have to ring up my own groceries? Why do I have to bag my own groceries? Why do I have to get yelled at by the robo-nagger? Please put the item in the bagging area. (laughs) Hey, I'm trying, but the bagging area isn't big enough to fit a roll of (laughs) lifesavers. I want to bring back my panel, S.E. Cup, Maria Cardona, and John Avalon, who have all had this experience. I was at a McDonald's last week, and I had to ring up my own order on this keyboard. First of all, this is fast food. It doubled the time. Uh me yes. spending the time in yes. the do- at a McDonald's. You're not, well, you're not trained in this. I'm not trained. I'm not trained this. either. No. Right. No. And I just, like, why is this concept never anywhere, like, useful? Like the DMV. I'd love to check myself out <laughs> in the DMV. <laughs> or somewhere fun, like the bar. Can I just get behind there and make, I'll make it myself? Believe me. Great idea. Like, that would actually be okay. Helpful. Yes, helpful. No. Uh, furthermore, <laughs> Maria, I'm not trying to steal stuff. <laughs> But I am stealing stuff inadvertently because when I don't know if the thing is working, if it's actually registering it, and I'm just putting it in my bag and waltzing out. Exactly. And then the the robo nagger, is that what he called it, comes on and he's like, it's not only please put the item in the bagging area, but it's double check the item. Double check that. And so you're right. It's like, maybe it's in there. Maybe it's not. How many bags are you using? You gave me tiny bags. Maybe zero. They're losing. I'm sure they're losing money on this. Well, look, it's certainly done in the name of efficiency and also obviously decreasing the number of people they have to employ, but it's not more efficient for the customer. Not at all. And that's the point. Rick Riley, this is a great humor column, right? I mean, it's what we all but, were thinking. No, totally. And he yeah, says, this guy's a great line. He's like, I don't work at grocery stores. Apparently, I work at American Airlines, too. CVS, Target. I'm checking myself out more than a seventh grade girl on TikTok. <laughs> that's a good line. But I wonder, I wonder if it's generational because my kids love it. They do? And really? Yes. Love and it? They, that's a big fact, word for this. And in fact, when I'm like in the middle of it trying to figure it out, they're like, mama. And they grab it and they do it oh, faster. How than dare they? I, I know. Exactly. I'm trying to bring humans back. You know, that's yeah. what I want. Technology. Yeah, all right, it's time for all of you to sound off on this. We'll read your tweets <laughs> next. <laughs> All right, time to sound off. Let's see what you're saying out there tonight. This one on self-checkouts from Paul White. Shouldn't we get an employee discount for self-checkouts? Yes, yes, Paul. Uh, This one also on the same thing. The self-checkout lines take longer because nobody knows what to do. I agree with you. I miss humans. 
Well, there Thank you go. Thank you. Here we go. Also on self-checkout, it's a very popular one from Sarah Manson. I don't use self-checkout. These machines have replaced cashiers who don't make much money as it is. I'd rather have a human cashier bag my purchase and get paid to do so. Me too. We're all Ooh. in agreement. I mean, I hope that CVS and, you know, Walgreens and Albertsons and everybody's listening. Everybody is unanimous. We want to deal with human beings. Until we don't. That's right. And of course, you know where to find us, <laughs> two human beings, everyone. Allison Camerata and the Laura Coates. Thanks so much for watching, everybody. <laughs> Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.